Uh, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you and want to turn there, or you can follow along in the bulletin, the same text is printed. Um, we've started into a series about exile, which is the Bible's metaphor for what it's like for Christians to live in the world. Uh, even if you live in your own hometown where you grew up, the experience of a Christian in the world is something of an experience of exile, where you don't feel like you fit in anymore, even if you're from there, where you feel like your values have changed and your assumptions about life and what gives you a sense of self and all those kind of things have changed so that you sort of feel like a stranger or a homeless person or an exile uh, right at home. And this is a problem for us, but it's also helpful for us to think about uh, because it kind of orients us as what it means to be a Christian in this life and how to make sense of what's going on with us. And so last week we started talking about this with the question, where are you? You know, and the answer to that is, well, you're you're not in Jerusalem, you're in Babylon, basically. You know, you're scattered among the nations, you're not home yet. Um, and you really won't be home until you're home in what the Bible calls the new creation, the world that Jesus has finished fixing for us, um, the next life. But in the meantime, where you are is you're an exile uh, living amongst the nations of the world. So last week, where are you? This week, who are you? Question of identity. How do you understand yourself and make sense of your life and fit yourself into this world in a way that seems to make sense with what's going on around you? How do you get some kind of a stable sense of identity uh, when you live here? And this is a problem for us, whether you're a Christian or not, trying to get your arms around identity. It's like the the uh, big vexing, perplexing question for people who live where we live. Um, it's not just laid out for you because of where you were born and what family you were born in and whether you're a boy or girl or anything like that. Now you kind of have to make up your own identity, which makes it pretty elusive. Um, when I think about certainty of identity, I think about Roger the Shrubber. You know Roger the Shrubber? <laughs> it's because you're young. Uh, this is a Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> Roger says, I'm a shrubber. I'm Roger, the shrubber. I arrange, design, and sell shrubbery. And I've never had a moment of clarity that profound in my life about identity. You know? I am Roger, the shrubber. And, uh, yeah, I would love just to feel what that feels like one time. I, I can't even take the Myers-Briggs twice in a row and get the same answers. You know? <laughs> so it's like, I, this identity thing is elusive and it would be pretty great if you could nail it down. Um, part of being in exile means that coming to terms with identity is harder for us. But another part of it, because we're Christians, makes it a lot easier for us. And we're given a pretty great gift as far as trying to understand who we are in light of our relationship with Jesus. And so that's what we're going to think about today. Um, why it's harder to figure out identity as a Christian in exile and why it's easier. So let me pray for us, and then we'll start. Father, please help us as we listen to your word. We pray that you would make us humble and open to you, that you would speak to us in a way that lets us know and understand you better and understand ourselves in relation to you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is the beginning of a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion 
in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know the uh, famous hymn, Amazing Grace, has the line in it that everybody, no matter what they believe, seems to be happy to sing. That says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And I always wonder, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, what do you mean when you say you were lost and now you are found? When I was growing up, it usually meant something like, I once was, of course, believing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and everything, still wanting to sort of sow my wild oats for a while, so I was lost, and then I sort of uh, slinked back into the faith, and now I'm found, right? I was selfish, now I'm compliant. And that doesn't seem to really get at what John Newton meant when he said I was once was lost, but now I'm found. I think he means I once was cut off from a relationship with God, and now that's been restored to me. Um, But when you talk about lostness in modern terms, it's almost always a a conversation about identity. That I'm lost. Like, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I'm supposed to be. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, how to fit myself into the world. And all of these questions seem very open and very perplexing to me. And I don't know how to sort them out. When someone says they're lost now, they might as well be saying, I'm like an amnesia sufferer. Like, I woke up, and now my life is a blank slate. I don't know who I am, so I can be anybody I want to be. I don't know what I do, so I can do anything I want to do. And I'm free now to start this whole new life uh, with all the options in the world in front of me. Which sounds great in a lot of ways. The idea of a reset button for life, pretty sweet. But on the other hand, it sounds terrifying. And almost any time you see this as a device in a story or a movie, the person is very eager to find out who they are, find someone who knows them, who can tell them who they really are, right? So, but lostness for us, you know, is just trying to sort out the million options about who we are and who we could be, uh, realizing even that those things could change tomorrow if we want to change them tomorrow, right? None of it's fixed or stable. So the people that Peter's writing to are Christians like us, and he calls them exiles like We understand ourselves to be exiles as Christians. But they come from more traditional culture. They're from Turkey or Asia Minor at the the time, uh, which was and is a traditional culture still, in which identity is not a question that you sort of answer for yourself, but it's one that's answered from the outside for you. Your dad was a farmer, you're a farmer, right? Your dad was a Muslim, you're a Muslim. You know, uh, you're identified by the family you come from, the siblings and parents that you have, the job that you are expected to do without making a whole bunch of choices yourself. Identity is derived that way. It's a lot more stable to get an identity that way. Um, And that's a benefit of the traditional way. I'm not going to argue for the traditional way of understanding ourselves. But when these people became Christians, it really messed things up for them. Because if you're in a place where everybody knows who you are because of your family and because of your inherited faith and because of the connections you have and the values and loyalties that you're expected to have that you didn't choose, and then you start following the Messiah who says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your father and mother. Like, And I'm going to turn your identity upside down. And I'm going to say, I'm going to change you so radically and profoundly 
that you're going to describe it as a new birth. Like you're going to be a whole new person and you're going to be set on a trajectory to become who I want you to be instead of who you're expected to be around you. Well, that's a problem because now your family doesn't know if they can trust you. And people don't know if your loyalties are really what they ought to be. Is your patriotism what it ought to be? Is your uh, willingness to be committed to the family and its enterprises or to the community and its enterprises what it should be? Uh, You're suspect and odd now, and your sense of self starts to become more fragile. And to these people, Peter speaks with this very specific orienting language about this is who you are. This is how you need to understand yourself and think about yourself. Uh, This is who you are now. And uh, so let's look at what he says. Let's look first at how it makes things harder for us, and then uh, more specifically how it makes things easier for us to hear God's naming of us, his, the identity that he places on us. Um, so identity is harder when you're a Christian. Uh, you need a stable sense of self, you know, some sense of worth in your life. That's usually what we mean by identity. And um, traditionally, like we said, in Asia Minor, Turkey, and most places in the world today, you don't have to go fishing around for identity. It's given to you. Right? You do what your community expects you to do, your family expects you to do. And the way you think of yourself as a good person, the heroic story you tell about yourself is that I sacrifice myself for the good of the community, that I do what they need me to do, and I sublimate my own desires and feelings and intuitions to the needs of the family or the community around me, and that's how I live most fully as a human being, and that's how... Uh, I can be a good person, and that's how I can know who I am and feel good about who I am. That's got the traditional way most people live in that story. Um, but not us. Right? Where are you supposed to find your identity? You look within, right? Look in your dear little hearts at your dear little dreams and intuitions. And derive from that your sense of identity. Don't be pressed into the mold of the world around you. You don't have to do what other people say you should do. You can throw off the shackles of family expectations and community expectations and religious expectations and be your own person. The heroic narrative is, I turned my back on all that was expected of me so I could live authentically as a a self-defined human being. And the odder that is to my family, the more courageous it is that I'm living it out. Right? I mean, that's our narrative. That's what, that's what all the movies tell us. That's what all the Disney movies tell your children, is uh, throw off the shackles and uh, find in your own heart that sense of meaning that you need an identity that you need. You know? And it sounds appealing. You could be free. And boy, some of you know firsthand how oppressive a traditional culture can be and the way it imposes identity on you. It can be tremendously freeing to get out from under that. And a lot of social change that is desirable social change comes because there have been people willing to throw off the shackles of traditional expectations on them. So it's not all bad. Um, but, um, but the modern way can be oppressive too. The look within yourself to find your identity can also be oppressive And I think you know this because so many of you are shot through with anxiety because you've been told your whole life you can do anything that you want to do and be anyone that you want to be. Here's the blank canvas. Go paint it. And you're like, 
I just want the box of eight crayons. I can't handle 128. I don't know how to decide. I don't know what I'm supposed to be and do. I've changed my major four times and I still don't know. And what I thought I was yesterday doesn't feel like who I am today. And so there's nothing stable about my identity and I don't know who I am. Right? And that's not an, a strange experience for people to have in our day. We're all like that. We're like the amnesia victim who at first thinks, sweet, I've got a clean slate. I can do whatever I want in my life. New start. New relationships, be what you want to be. But by the end of the movie, they're all like, oh, please, somebody, you know who I am? You know my name? Tell me, tell me, tell me. I'm dying to know who I am, and I need you to tell me. Right? Because I can't just, re, I can't just reinvent it and believe it and feel like it's true or stable at all. And I eventually wind up feeling lost. Amnesia is a problem to fix, not a sweet opportunity to embrace, as it turns out. Right? The other problem that looking within ourselves is um, how changeable we are. Like if you need a stable sense of who you are, it, it can't change all the time uh, or you're not stable. But the problem is we all change all the time. Shoot, I change day to day with what I really want and think and what my little heart wants when I look inside. But man, over time, I really change. You know, I've heard, probably heard people talk about this, but you know, if you look at yourself 10 years ago, you were an idiot, right? <laughs> and soon you'll get to look at yourself like 20 years ago and you'll think, oh no. Like, why would anyone ever keep a diary or journal? You know, because someone might see that. You know, that, that goes in the shredder now, man. Some of you know what it's like to remember who you were 50 years ago. And not much is more embarrassing than that, right? You, you will be an idiot to your future self. Is pretty much what it comes down to. And so why should you spend the time to look deep inside your own little intuitive heart to figure out who you are now? Right? It doesn't work very well for us to create a stable sense of self so you can actually be comfortable in your own skin and fit yourself into life. Um, it sounds free, in some ways it is, but in some ways it's a torture. The other thing about the look inside your heart way of getting an identity, and I'm going to contrast this to Jesus speaking into our lives to give us an identity, is that even if you think your, your sense of self is all derived from your own heart, you're still a social puppet for the most part. You still are driven and controlled by what your culture around you thinks. And even if you try not to be, it's inescapable. We all figure out who we are by what other people say to us and about us. Uh, Tim Keller gives this example. I thought it was uh, helpful to understand this. He says, imagine someone uh, walking the streets of London 1,200 years ago. It's a man who is an Anglo-Saxon, and he sees within himself, as he looks inside his heart, uh, two different qualities and motivations. One is aggression. He loves to kill his enemies. He loves being a warrior. He loves taking on the role of the, of the protector and aggressor in his society to preserve what's going on around him. Um, that's part of what he sees in himself as aggression. But he also sees in himself same-sex attraction. And so what does he do when he tries to understand who he is? He thinks, aggression, warrior, that's prized by the people around me. That's me. Aggression, warrior, that's me. Same-sex attraction, yeah, no, that's not me, <laughs> because that wouldn't be okay to be me. 
He says, now imagine a similar person walking down the streets of London today who recognizes in himself uh, two motives, attitudes. One is aggression. And he says, I just love to take revenge and be violent and kill people. And he says, well, that's not me. (laughs) I need therapy. I need anger management because that can't be me. That's not okay. I know from my culture around me that that's not okay. But if he feels in himself also same-sex attraction, he thinks, oh, that's me. That's me. And both of these answers are socially driven, right? It's people around you putting their expectations on you that really shape your own self-understanding. So the idea of looking within yourself to figure out who you are uh, has some pretty severe limits to it. And that's why we need to look for something else. We need something outside of ourselves to name us and give us identity. But it can't just be our culture or our family or uh, a spouse or something like that because um, they can't bear the weight of being our responsibility. We need to be named by God is what we find as we look for identity in our lives. And this is what we have as Christians. And what makes identity easier is that we have been claimed by God, found by Him, and named by Him, and given an identity by Him. So, you remember Jason Bourne in the Bourne Identity movie? You know, he, um, he woke up somewhere. It seemed like it was South America. I mean, uh, South Africa. And had scars on his back and no memory of anything and set about to try to figure out what he was doing. And at one point, he comes to a safe deposit box stash that he has, and he, he opens it. And I guess we all should have a safety deposit box like this somewhere, but it's a, uh, you know, it's got money and some weapons and a bunch of passports. And he's like, which one is me? <laughs> which passport is me? And... Um, as you're watching the movie, you think, I know which one it is. It's the one that says Jason Bourne. But any modern person should really say, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Who do you want to be today? Pick one. You know, because you don't have any kind of stable identity. But what Jesus does for us is he basically says, this is your passport. This is the right one. This is who you are. This is who you are. Uh, you are who I've made you to be and who I'm remaking you to be. That's the real you. And you see this in what he says in this pretty complicated theological passage that we're looking at. He starts off by calling them elect exiles of the diaspora, which sounds like language that we use most days, right? (laughs) Elect exiles of the diaspora. I mean, at least I'm guessing that sounds Jewish to you, and it should, right? Uh, The diaspora is the Jewish people scattered among the nations. Peter says, yeah, that's what Christians are. You're God's people, his elect people. You're basically the continuation and culmination of uh, God's people, the Jews, now as the church, scattered among the nations. And their experience in exiles is uh, a metaphor that describes your experience as Christians in the nations. You're in exile where you live. Um, So not um, having found yourself or named yourself, but being found by God and being named by Him. So um, then he adds language to that to understand who you are. Um, He says, you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, foreknowledge does not mean, it's not not philosophy class uh, speculation about foreknowledge, about God knows in advance what's going to happen, so in a sense that He makes it happen, and 
This isn't an answer to that question. Foreknowledge is to be known ahead of time, is to be loved in advance. God set his love on you in advance. That's what foreknowledge means. But that means that he knew who you are. He knew you in advance, set his love on you in advance, and knows more deeply than you do or anyone around you who you really are and who you're meant to be. The foreknowledge of God means that for us. And then he says, uh, the last phrase there, that we're uh, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. And sprinkling with blood <laughs> really sounds weird if you're not familiar with the Bible. It sounds kind of normal in a strange way if you are familiar with the Bible. It's very Old Testament oriented. You know, the, the priest would sprinkle blood of a sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant and then on the people. Um, which was uh, pretty dramatic and pretty gory, but uh, was the ritual of cleansing for the people. And that idea is carried over into the New Testament, mostly in the sacrament of baptism, where um, God claims us, cleanses us, names us through the baptismal water. So much so that some people call baptism christening, which seems to sort of undercut some of the meaning of it, but it's a naming ceremony when we're baptized. Uh, God puts his name on us and calls our names and says we're his. You know, so this again is God making his claim on us and telling us who we are. And then he says, uh, the third phrase in there is that we're in the sanctification of the spirit. And sanctification, another 15 cent word, um, talks about us being claimed and set apart for God. Like we belong to him now. But it also describes the process of him changing us. Like he's given us a new identity. We're new people uh, back in relationship with him now. But we're in a process of becoming that new person that lasts our whole life called sanctification. So we are being worked on by God, having our character changed by him uh, so that we'll be fit for the new creation after the resurrection. So that he is preparing us for life in the world that's meant to be as the people we've always been meant to be. And you're going to be that person because of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, as it says here. So God knows who you are, who you're going to be. That's the real you, and that's who he's making you. He's in the process of doing that. Um, So um, part of what's weird about being a Christian, though, with identity is... You know you're new, but you also feel old. You're like you're who you always were. And when you think about identity, you're as much wrapped up in your past and your regrets as you are in who you're going to be as a Christian. And so, you know, it's very hard to sort through uh, shame and cloudiness and uh, things that you'd rather not remember and really be able to embrace the idea that you're going to be this new person, that you're already beautiful and acceptable in Jesus' eyes. And he's already pulled the passport out to say, this one's you. And I'm going to make you something more beautiful than you can imagine. And your identity is not just going to be a series of regrets about things you've done in places that you've been that you can't ever go back to because you're ashamed. Your identity is going to be what the Bible calls glory. Like, you're going to be substantive and beautiful and all the capacities of a human being in the image of God are going to be expressed in your life. That's who you are. And that's who you're going to be. Now, you don't derive that by looking within. And you don't derive that from what your family says to you most of the time. But you do have a word from outside that tells you who you are. And it comes from your creator. 
who is unchanging. So this identity is stable. And uh, it's also, you're being named by the person who knows you the best and loves you the most. And that's also, that's exceptionally tender and kind for us to be able to experience as Christians. Peter experienced this. You know, when, when Peter, who wrote this letter, met Jesus, his name was Simon. Right? And when pretty soon after they met, it seems like Jesus said, yeah, your name's Simon, but, but now your name's Peter. Um, the rock. And I'm going to build my church on this rock. And I don't know how that must have sounded to Peter. Probably, probably preposterous. Because every time he sort of tried to live into that identity, he made a fool of himself. I'm going to be the rock now. I'm supposed to be the rock. So right after that, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, I'm Peter now, the rock. No, you're not. <laughs> this shall never happen. And uh, Jesus says, gave him another new name. Get, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> like, can we go back to Simon? You know, and then uh, you know, but later... Jesus walks on the water coming out to him and Peter's blown away, but also impulsive. Lord, can I walk out to you on the water? He said, yeah. And then he, as soon as he gets out, he starts looking down at his feet, uh, thinking I'm a rock, and he became one. <laughs> um, but, you know, Jesus isn't giving up on him, but, you know, Simon's having a hard time trying on this new identity and figuring it out. Near to his death, Jesus said, uh, y'all are going to abandon me. You're going to betray me. And Peter says, I'll die with you. I'm the rock. I'll never, I'll never betray you. Jesus said, no, I mean you, Peter. <laughs> You're going to deny me three times tonight when I need you the most. And uh, he fails there. But then you have the restoration of Peter. Remember, Peter, having failed as the rock so often, once Jesus has died, even though some people say they saw him raised from the dead, Peter says, yeah, um... I'm going back fishing <laughs> because that's what Simon does. <laughs> that's what I know. I'm going to go fishing. And Jesus comes in, out to where he's fishing and says, Hey, uh, have you caught anything? <laughs> Which is not what you'd say to fishermen. And, uh, <laughs> but it was hearkening back to when they first met. And Jesus said, Try the other side of the boat. And Peter gets, he says, Oh, it's the Lord. And he, doesn't even dress. He dives in the water and swims up. See Jesus. And he has this really tender restoration. Um, denied Jesus three times. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And he says, yeah. uh, of course I do, but look at my life. You know. And he says, feed my sheep. You're Peter. You're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. That's who you really are. And then Peter, the Galilean fisherman who's... You know, Roman Empire, Jewish, Galilean, family fishing business. That's who he is. You know, straight, white. I don't know what his Eve Harmony thing says, but you know, Peter knows who Peter is. Simon does growing up. Now he's Peter. Now he's preaching at Pentecost with 5,000 people converting in a couple of days. And then before long, he's in Rome, Italy, being crucified upside down in the name of the Savior. And now he's Peter, right? He's figured out his identity. He's lived into his identity. And uh, his story's our story. Right? The Bible says crazy things like in the Isaiah passage it said, I'm going to give you a new name. Um, and in Revelation, 
there's an enigmatic little passage in Revelation 2. It says that Jesus will give Christians a stone with a name on it, known only to him and them. I just gloss over that when I read it because that's, that's, that's too tender to really stop and think about very long. You think, he would know me, love me, care about me, want me, invest in who I'm going to become, and rename me. That's a sense of identity that can't be taken away. That's just, if you believe that, you'd stride through life as comfortable in your skin as anybody that you've ever seen around you. You'd be like Roger the Shrubber, man. You'd be, <laughs> I am Peter, the apostle. I arrange, design, and sell the Christian faith. You know? But I mean, that's how he identifies himself. I'm Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he doesn't even have any footnotes under that. You know, that's, that's who I am. And he's settled into it. And you can too. You don't get to be an apostle, sorry. But, you know, as a Christian, you settle into your, your new identity, uh, which is a beautiful thing. Um, so, you're not defined by your job. You're not defined by your major. You're not defined by your nation. You're not defined by your sexuality. You're not defined by your intelligence. And thank God you're not defined by your past. You're defined by your Savior, who knows you, who has named you, and found you. Let's pray.